For November 4th, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 592. We have to do the thing that we have to do in the movie. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny, ragtag band of human revels from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hunting, being hunted by killer robots, hunting them in return, and uh, triumphing, humanity triumphing over technology, humankind, a human being triumphing uh, over the, the cold metal hand of a mechanical robot. I am Matt Rather. I'm here with my very good friends, Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. And Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. I did that in reverse order because uh, we are talking about Terminator Dark Fate this week. And Mark Lee is the world's foremost expert on Terminator. So, uh, Terminator, all spoilers, all books. Let's dive in. Uh, dark Fate. W- Mark, what even is a Dark Fate? And, and what, what, did this, uh, what did this film, which involves, a, uh, which involves a young woman from Mexico City uh, who travels with Linda Hamilton, who is also in Mexico, and a hunter-killer robot... Um, or a defender hunter killer augmented human um, from the future in order to escape uh, a Terminator that is actually two Terminators being sent from the future. Okay, there's the plot. It's all been spoiled for you. Uh, oh, Arnold it, shows it's up. It's spoiled for you in 1984 and 1991 with Terminator 1 and Terminator 2. <laughs> but uh, this time it's, it's two guys. The Terminator's secret powers what? and it's two dudes. What? <laughs> but there's no... Uh, yeah, it's a terrible, it's a terrible conceit because there's no... Con- Constraint on the uh, never mind, Mark. What? what <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I, I come to bury Terminator, not to praise it. What did? What did? Uh, what did? Uh, did this film mean to you? Uh, it, it means that uh, people in Hollywood are desperate and self delusional, and they think that they can approach this material um, in only slightly different ways and try to succeed, where others keep failing over and over again. They don't get. That it's virtually impossible to make a successful sequel to Terminator 1 or Terminator 2. That is the dark fate, right? That um, that these movies, these two movies are so successful and tie things up so neatly. Uh, and the Hollywood impetus is just kind of like, you know, revisit the formula and tweak it just a little bit. Um, that it just keeps turning up movies that are bad. And everybody's, no, nobody's happy with the situation. James Cameron isn't, the stars aren't, um, the casual fans aren't, the diehard fans aren't. Um, well, I think we'll talk more about the meta stuff uh, later on about how that's borne out in the film itself and, and, and its story. But um, to me, Terminator has uh, less been about like the dangers of technology, and it's more been about how technology and other things uh, alienate people away from each other and how they come back together. Um, while they happen to be fighting killer robots from the future. So, sure. Does that happen in this movie? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's another aspect of this as well, too, um, that this movie tries to bring something new and fresh, in particular with the Mexico and the immigration things, where you're talking about um, the powerless of society. And you could also trace it back to 1984 Terminator with, uh, you know, Sarah Connor, the female, the, just the every woman waitress, the powerless, uh, wind up, you know, who are, who are being hunted down by these very powerful forces, the military, 
the police, um, the security state, the uh, INS, the uh, Customs and Border Patrol, uh, so on and so forth. Um, they're they're hunted down uh, and they find a way to fight back and and take fate into their hands and not just accept that they are victims of broader things beyond their control, but they even, you know, a, an incredibly powerful cyborg from the future. No, they, they overcome their obstacles. They, they, they are not alienated from each other. They form relationships with each other and they fight and they, and they can win. Uh, probably. I mean, that's an advancement after uh, the, the first Terminator movie. that's something that is um, kind of always up for debate in terms of whether they're actually, um, sort of beating Skynet or or Legion or whatever the malevolent thing is from the future, but that's my stab at like what this movie is about and its kind of broader themes. Now, does it succeed in doing all of this? Uh, are there eh, yes and no? Are there a lot of distractions and things that are not done well in the movie? Oh yes, absolutely. We will certainly talk about those. But uh, I'll toss it to Pete. Uh, does any of that make sense? Uh, uh, do you agree? I, disagree? I, I think so. I, I disagree a little bit. It's not that it's, disagree is a strong word, right? Because I don't it's not fair or appropriate for me to say that the way that I enjoy Terminator has to be the way that everybody else enjoys Terminator. And I don't mean that in terms of disputing you, just in the sense that I've always connected with these movies maybe a little bit differently. I've never really seen the Terminator movies as about the anxieties around technology. I've always seen them as the anxieties about the future and particularly the anxieties around having kids. Um, and particularly the the sort of relationship between men and women in a modern world in which there isn't really a sense that women are being protected or taken care of as they attempt to both make their way in the world and also have kids. Um, and, and it's like, well, you're going to sacrifice your life in order to have a baby, right? And the men around you aren't really on your side and you feel very alone. Uh, if you're a single woman, you know, does society just see you as a mother or can you be something else? And, and the first two Terminator movies, the pregnancy one and the motherhood one, I think do some really interesting stuff, right? With these ideas, expressing them as symbolic cultural anxieties and, and the Terminator as a robot is mostly just there as as a sort of unreal symbol that gives you enough slant to tell the truth right the the idea that uh linda hamilton is a is a momzilla who like loads her son up in a van because she's convinced that the world is trying to kill him is i think an experience that a lot of people can identify with personally in a lot of ways and and, and to a greater or lesser degree right it's exaggerated it's not quite like oh man i need to strap on my my welding goggles and pick up a bazooka but like there's the fear right that that the world is going to kill your kids and um and that's a real fear that's and, and so i think the best horror movies are like hyper blown out articulations of real fear in some way. And so in that sense, I kind of feel like the Terminator franchise loses its way when it gets too deep into the whole thing about technology. But at the same time, I know some people really like that aspect of the Terminator franchise. So, you know, uh, so sure. Uh, if you want to read it that way, uh, then I think that there's probably enough to support it. So what I'll say is that if you're looking at Terminator Dark Fate from the technology side and you're sort of like, yeah, it's sort of about technology and it's kind of about like the surveillance state and it's kind of about like immigration and kind of the movement of peoples. And and in that sense, it's about 
about oppression, but it's a little confusing and I don't really know what it's trying to say. I would say that it does all those same things, but also with gender politics, right? Like it's like it's sort of about women who present as men or androgynous and who are queer. And the idea that like with the characteristics that we think of as female aren't really necessarily associated with women. Uh, you know, this is a movie in which the super soldier is a, a fashionable young woman and the, the gruff old warrior like designs drapes for a living. Right. This is like Arnold Schwarzenegger makes drapes in this movie. And there's a lot of confoundment of the gender roles of the various people who are in the movie. Um, and it's, and about- it's just like they're really on the nose. Right. It's like, you know, you think that Danny is the new Sarah Connor, that her son is going to be the man that saves the world. And they really underline the word man. But no oh, surprise. It's Danny herself. Right. She's the one who's you're John Connor. It's like so painfully on the you nose. saw that. Yeah. I mean, right. we saw that coming a mile away, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, but it wasn't even a surprise, like because there was nothing that happened that mattered that had anything to do with any of it. And that's the thing is that it's not some. And for me, this movie isn't symbolic enough. The the action in the movie isn't symbolic enough in terms of being in opposition to the things that it's supposed to be praising, right? Like if the idea, right, is that. Sarah Connor in the first movie is like a single woman who is trying to have her own life and is threatened by the idea that she has to be a mother. And Sarah Connor in the second movie is a woman who is kind of threatened by the idea that she has to be a mother. Right. But she also wants she that she is a mother. Right. Already. And she's trying to raise her kid and the society won't let her in this movie. If it's really about either. Right. Either because there's like huge discontinuities here. Danny being a uh, Mexican woman, not even Mexican-American, a Mexican woman who is trying to rise to a place of global importance in a Western hemisphere that doesn't particularly value her. Or is it about Grace, who is the like presenting masculine LGBT sort of like super soldier from the future representing a sort of like uh, resistance, you know, hashtag resistance. She persisted notion of like feminist opposition to male oppression. These are two completely different problems. Uh, you could find out an elegant way to express both these problems. This movie doesn't do that. And, and and the idea is that in the first movie, the Terminator is trying to kill Lynn Hamilton. And the second movie, she's trying to kill John Connor, right? She's trying to kill Sarah Connor, right? kill uh, John Connor. And the Terminator in this movie is just sort of coming after everybody. Like, like there's there's not certainly Danny doesn't communicate in the way that she performs the part. Right. That like she is uniquely scared of the term like the Terminator is coming after me. This is about my life and I'm scared. Right. Or like this is about my life and I'm brave. She like has multiple speeches throughout the movie where she says that it doesn't matter. Right. It's like it doesn't matter that the Terminator is coming for me. It doesn't matter about Skynet. Nothing in the future matters. None of this stuff matters. The only thing that matters is how we get through this movie on a beat by beat basis. Right. Like yeah. the robot's coming. We got to kill the robot. Don't worry about the implications. Right. And just, and so- just, a, just a reminder, he's <laughs> forgotten. And I don't I don't make this too much about like oh, constantly comparing to Terminator one and two. But, well, the movie is, is constantly referencing those two. So let's have at it. Right. Terminator one. Uh, literally rips the, the the page out of the phone book. Sarah Connor, Sarah Connor, Sarah Connor. Right, it's just like drilled into the. He's going out to Sarah Connor, going out to Sarah Connor. In the second one, uh, the the T one thousand gets the photo of the boy, and it's like, have you seen this kid? Have you seen this kid? I'm looking for John Connor. Looking for John Connor. Looking for John Connor. Like those movies, like really, um, uh, again, like it's very on the nose, but probably in a good and effective way in in those movies. And you're right, Pete. That's like it's not clear who the 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 that the new Latinx Terminator is going after in this one. Yeah, like like we know because they tell us, 
but they don't show us. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there you like, go. Yeah. And, and particularly because like there's a bunch of people early in the movie who get killed, but there's not that. It's also a tonal thing, like in the composition of the movie. It's particularly its use of light and color. The whole first part of the movie is super bright and very flat. And so there's not really a sense of anticipation or dread. Uh, it's just all like light is everywhere so that you can see every angle of every special effects shot. And like, and there's, there's not, I didn't get a sense from the composition that like, there's any threat that's happening to Danny. It's just this robot that you know that she has to kill. Right. And so the, yeah, it's like, it's that the Terminator, the Terminator in this movie, isn't even a particularly menacing actor. Like the actor isn't scary. The actor, the, the actor isn't even really seems particularly motivated. Like it's the, the idea is that the actor, the Terminator represents a kind of dispassionate institutional destruction Right. Like the, like the Terminator is a bureaucratic Terminator where it's 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 nothing personal. You just have to get to the back of the line. Right. Like as in like, look, you know, I just have orders. I just have to do this. And that that's actually also repeated by various Terminators in this movie. Right. Like, I don't want to do the thing that I'm doing. I just have to <laughs> like and and that's sort of presented as kind of a reason. But but that's not particularly satisfying in a. If you're talking about a paradigm of like the killer robot manifesting some sort of like urgent human fear, right? Like in this case, the Terminator is like it's not it's not really reaching that kind of personal symbolic level. It's much more of a sort of social allegory where like the individual characters aren't really at stake and it's kind of a pastiche. It's like like a still life of what the world might be like if everything were represented in a Terminator movie. And the degree to which things happen doesn't really engage or hook into any sort of like individual sense of what that is, even even the sort of bringing back of the old people, uh, you know, who who I mean, maybe the clearest example of this is with uh, Sarah Connor coming back, and we learn that Sarah Connor kills Terminators all the time at this point, right? Like, every couple of years, like, at some point, Skynet... And that's, and that's a problem. Yeah. Like, among many yes. problems, that's a problem. Yeah. Because killing, that, a, termi- killing a Terminator has got to be a big deal. Because the things that we make movies about, things that we make action movies about... Um, I, I want to talk about action movies. I think, Pete, I think you have a lot of interesting stuff to say about yeah. this. But, like... Um, in, in, what happens in an action movie has got to be a big deal, right? Like that's why it's you know that's why we make a movie about it. And if she's killing Terminators every like you know six to eight weeks or something, that's not you know for John or whatever. If it's become rote, you know, and she's uh, you know getting blackout drunk every night. And by the way, uh, uh, people who get blackout drunk every night don't have that figure, uh, especially not at that, <laughs> especially not at that age. Um, the, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of male action heroes who eat and drink terribly and are also have six packs. So I'll give her a pass on that one. Although it is somewhat uh, at this point, the character is getting so old <laughs> that the idea that they can stay strong, even with metal endoskeletons is a little bit dodgy. That's I liked, sure. uh, I, I liked the, I liked Linda Hamilton's look in this movie. I, I will say it's like, you actually see, you don't see elderly people a lot in film. Do you? Not like as people. I mean, like Helen Mirren, maybe, or, or you know, <laughs> Ian McKellen, but like, just not, not who you see like them as, yeah, not as people. You see them as like institutions somehow, right? And that's not, uh, that's not what this is about for sure. Right, right. And I, so I feel, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, if we're talking, just to make sure we address this, sorry, we're talking about how killing Terminators um, is like road or less special, less of an event. And it's part of the problem in the sort of the world building and setup of this. We should also, of course, acknowledge that 
um, fridging John Connor at the beginning of this movie so <laughs> abruptly uh, was not perhaps the strongest way to start this. I mean, I guess I understand why you had to take him out of the picture to allow a new quote unquote savior of mankind to come or just not be distracted by it. Um, but still, come on. Right. Yeah. Like I, I all the time was, and energy was, spent. I thought it was him. a cool. It is. It is a real thumb in the eye of the previous movies. But I didn't have that problem with this movie that a lot. A lot of people had that problem with this movie. And I thought, oh, that's like legitimately shocking and interesting. Let's see what they do with it. And they didn't really do anything with it. And, and I think part of the problem there, which we've we've talked about on our own and we might as well talk about here, is that like Legion Right. Like, OK, OK, OK. So I'm sorry. I'm so overwhelmed. I really didn't like this movie, guys. I wanted to. I really did. And I don't want to harp on just why I didn't like it. Um, but but it's hard to even organize my thoughts around it because I think it's a movie that's particularly unkind to overthinkers because it has all of these like things in it that should promise like a much deeper uh, investigation into what's going on, at least on the level of Hobbs and Shaw. Right. Like and, and yet it seems to frustrate the, the idea of like drilling deeper into it as an action movie and understanding it because it like crosses itself and, and kind of contra- contradicts itself and on a very small ball level keeps frustrating itself. But 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 just to sort of uh, chill that out for a moment. Right. Like in this movie, John Connor is killed in the first 10 minutes. That says to me, oh, my God, everything has changed. Right. Like a fundamental assumption that has been the case through all the Terminator movies has just been upended. Right. The world is different. Right. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like if you throw down something like that at like the very beginning of the movie, there better be like really huge implications for it, because not necessarily just because John Connor is important, but because that note has this real emotional urgency to it, that it's a scream that that isn't like a little like lead in. It's like a right like a big old beaker uh-huh. uh, muppet scream like, rah, 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 like but, but people, what what happens instead so what happens <laughs> is that that's because because the events of terminator 2 have happened where where uh the connors and co destroy skynet skynet isn't developed but a different ai is developed that's called legion that through some sort of course of convergent ai evolution does exactly the same thing that skynet does in pretty much every respect it's, it's no, 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 skynet no, 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 no. it's skynet but with with octopus tentacles no no, no. yes it, it, they, they do break open octopus tentacles they get it. octopus tentacles and when they send the terminator back in time he splits into two He's two places at once. Totally different. It's two dudes. Two dudes. Although one of them, I wish they they play with that even more, and that the liquid guy had like different strengths and weaknesses than the other guy, or even that they talked to each other. How great would that be? Ah, if they, yeah, that or even if they good. were like the cape in Doctor Strange or the carpet in Aladdin, where they didn't talk, but they had like a repartee with each other while they were doing things. Um, that's mostly what I miss in this movie are those little sorts of what's the implication of the thing that you're watching? Like you set up an expectation, cash it out in some kind of fun and interesting way, and the movie doesn't really do that it's not really interested in picking up its own threads because it was made by like 150 people on the skype call no yeah and it had to, it, it has a yeah it has like an episodic reset like there's and it this actually literalized it's reified in the movie in the form of the injection that grace can get yeah. to kind of reset to the to her thing and like the you know if good good storytelling of this type like needs you need to live with your decisions right you need to cash out the implications of your decision and, and sort of live with them and a good speaking of all spoilers all books a good example of this is george R. R. martin uh in song of ice and fire not so much the game of thrones tv series in its later seasons but song of ice and fire like you know say, say 
say what you will about him, but he does cash out the implications, you know, in minute detail of what, uh, what happens in his universe, you know, and that's, uh, that's something that's, that's utterly missing, uh, from this film on a plot level and also on a, uh, thematic level, right? Like one of the things you pointed out, Pete, in our, uh, one of the things we pointed out in our, our chat as we were preparing for this movie is that like Linda Hamilton makes a big deal. Uh, Sarah Connor makes a big deal at the beginning about how you can't, uh, how Grace doesn't know how to use a cell phone and that we leave a digital trail. But Grace is a child in this time timeline and she probably has an iPad was yeah. the point that you made like that, yeah. you know, because she's a middle class child and middle class children have iPads. The, um, she's the, also a machine herself and can like apparently tap directly into the cell phone network yeah. and try and <laughs> <laughs> GPS on text messages. So yeah, that all's thrown out off the window. She's and it's uh, it's actually it's yeah. What are you doing? Future s is what she says. <laughs> like future poop. I thought that was a really good uh, little bit of lampshading of that ridiculous moment and the thing. But like it, that ridiculous that ridiculous thing is is ridiculous, right? There's there is and it's it's actually you know it's meant to mean something. Um, but it's actually it doesn't mean anything and by not meaning anything it's it's sort of cruel the whole yeah. US customs and border patrol uh thing like the whole border patrol detention facility where the prisoners don't call them prisoners call them detainees their prisoners are you know our process like is done without any kind of thematic uh any kind of like you know n- note for the thematic and it's like it's almost like it's this you know um i don't know it's this i i'm i really think gia tolentino is good it, this book uh trick mirror has a lot to say about the themes of this movie and she makes the point in her book that that uh on the internet because things can't exist on the internet only the representations of things that it comes to prioritize the representations of things uh over the actual things themselves the kind of the the material conditions on the ground as it were and like it it's like, oh yes, we have a a coyote uh, crossing the border. Check, like woke check mark, right? Oh, we have the the uh, the border patrol, like uh, uh, people in cages there, you know, like woke check mark. But it's not, it's not cashed out at all. And by the way, they try to soften it uh, by making the the only agent that we see an African-American woman so that it's not like it's not the, you know, the long arm of the white male law that is is coming down on, you know, uh, uh, Linda Hamilton, the single mother, you know, and the... Um, uh, and the undocumented Mexican immigrant, right? That, that, uh, that, and, and in doing so, in failing to cash that out, it, it, it's glibness. Um, its glibness becomes cruel, right? Yeah. Just just from name checking things without actually uh, without actually considering the implications. So on both a, on both a plot level and a. Um, thematic level i think this this happens a lot and i have oh, more to say about this I, yeah i have something else that's name checks without any thought or for uh, cashing out at all did you guys notice at the beginning when their uh, terminators are coming uh, off the beach uh, from the water onto land you guys know where that is right 
Are they at Normandy? Yeah, they're at Normandy. Wait, That's was that it really? Very famous, yeah, there's a very famous uh, beach obstacle that the Nazis put in place to try to prevent the uh, the Americans from landing. Um, and so that's definitely meant to register something from filmgoers who, I don't know, have like seen Save It Private Ryan or um, or just have a passing familiar with the imagery of D-Day. Or more more, more specifically, have played Call of Duty. Um, right. <laughs> they, they're counting on people to pick that up. And what does that mean? Nothing. Absolutely yeah. Nothing. It's just like, ooh, this thing is here, and it portends uh, some sort of danger or significance of that. Actually, no. Right, because it's not like – because so then what that would do and, – and it's not just that it doesn't talk more about D-Day. It's that it takes the symbols that are associated with it, and it then kind of just – makes them into a total puts them into a totally different theme like right away right so if you go by that schema the terminators are coming up on shore and grace is fleeing the terminators so this would put us in a situation that would sort of like say dunkirk or saving private ryan or or the longest day or any number of other movies where like people are in the ruins of a french city as the nazis have kind of rolled through it and are trying to evade you know the behind enemy lines and they're trying to evade the nazis and so she has to go back and fix things. And that's kind of what she's been tasked with doing. But no, she's been tasked with saving the commander, right? So she's not tasked with going back at first. She's tasked with saving the commander. And then only after she's killed is she then sent back, which happens off screen. So it's like, okay, so is she French? <laughs> right? Like, like is if it were one thing and it was like, oh, she has a really strong sense of like patriotic pride for what her place was like. Like, what if Grace actually remembered? Okay. Okay. Here's the thing. What if Grace remembered what her childhood was like in this movie? That's that. Think about how strange it is that Grace has no apparent, like, uh, like sentimentality for seeing the world again, the way that it was when she was a child. Like, if oh, I was sent point. back yeah. in time to 1986 and I walked through that, like, even anywhere near where I grew up. Hell, if you sent me back in time to 1986 and put me in New York City and I looked up and I saw the World Trade Center, I would like weep, right? Like, now imagine the entire world was like that. The entire world had been destroyed in a terrorist attack when you were like 10, right? And you get sent back in time and you get to see it, you know, before destruction. And and it's like, it's not just that Grace didn't have a response to it, because maybe she's not that sentimentally kind of person, but it really is never a beat anywhere in the movie, right? Like, so like, there's nothing about D-Day. There's nothing about remembering the past. There's nothing about like the loss of civilization, right? Like there's nothing about, oh, wow, you guys don't know how good you have it, right? The world is so, even though people are being so mean to each other, like imagine how, what would be done for this movie if Grace had like a big speech where she was like, you guys have no idea how lucky you are to live in this world and you are treating it like trash, right? Like, like, and like if she had a big speech to the like border patrol people, right? Um, but there's nothing like that in this movie. There's no action of the characters to kind of reflect a feeling about the symbols that are being brought up. The symbol just gets brought up and checked off and nobody kind of mirrors it back and and shows it back to you um and that's really what's really frustrating i think to me about this movie more than anything i mean it's 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 in things large and small right like the biggest example is like grace has no feelings about the past uh, of the world right or humanity she has a a Um, lot of feelings about linda hamilton for some reason 
I don't know why she hates Sarah Connor so much. It would be one thing if she was just like, like, I, I would be one thing if it was like, oh, I was sent on this mission. I don't entirely trust you. You did something early on to, like, make me not trust you more. Or, like, I don't like the fact that you're bossing me around, so I'm going to be kind of annoying about it, which is what it would be like if it were any other action movie. Like, if she was played by Danny Glover, right? Like, it would be right. like, look, man, you know, like, you're kind of crazy, and we have, a, we have to do this by the book, right? Like, there would be a repartee to it. But she, like, hates her. And she's really nasty about it, right? Like, uh, I mean, it's like there's no, there's like, there's like, I'm going to kill you, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to murder you as soon as you, I get a chance. And it's like, that's that's not the kind of thing that the, the by the book cop says to the rogue cop, right? Or is she the rogue cop? And then Linda Hamilton is the by the book cop. And I don't get it, right? Well, it's, yeah, um, I mean, the, the, the relationships are unclear, right? If Terminator, yeah. let's just forget the, the non-canonical by which I mean, uh, the non, the Terminator or Terminator 2 Judgment Day, uh, Terminator movies for a minute that we can come back to them. Uh, if we want the, like, if Terminator 1 is about how, how death is encroaching and you you sort of create a relationship and reproduce in order to stave off death, right? And Terminator 2 is about, uh, I think to a certain extent, anxieties about single motherhood in, mm-hmm. you know, in America at the time, in the developed world at the time, right? Then this, what what is the, what is the underlying set of relationships? Like, who are these people to one another, right? That, that make them important to one another and, and make us care it's entirely at the level at the level of plot right like in that so is is grace danny's mother is she her daughter because actually when danny sort of rescues her in the future in the rubble in the bombed out building then like uh she sort of takes care of her and is her authority figure like and she turns that is she her lover that doesn't really make make sense like as a partner or a you know a um so I guess that that goes back to the first to the first Terminator, where the the protector becomes a partner, but none of that none of that is cashed out uh, at all. And then, what is the relationship of Linda Hamilton? Is she grandma? Is she a competitor, like a, a love triangle competitor type of thing? It's 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 not thought it's not thought through. It's not thought out what what these people are to each other, and because you don't know uh, what they are to each other, it's very difficult for it to like come to mean anything. It's it's a coalition, yeah. but it's it's like a mirror of a coalition that exists in the real world because of a lot of luck and chance, right? Like, there's no particular reason why immigrants and old women are on the same side in politics, but nowadays they are in the United States. So okay, oh, now yeah, that's true. Sarah and, Connor and, and Elizabeth young... Warren. Oh. Yeah, this is the she, this is the she resisted. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying this to belittle the movie. I feel like if the movie has a true north that it could have really doubled down on and become much better, I think that's it. I think it's the idea that this is three different women from three different backgrounds who have no reason to like or trust each other who have to recognize that the institution of uh, the the male institution of universal war and permanent oppression is like is a threat to all of them and they need to stop arguing with each other and start and team up right uh, to to fight back i think that that movie is first of all it writes itself right like and second of all i think it's pretty crisp right and it's and you'd be surprised at how little that happens in this movie that like that like Dan maybe it's the Danny's moments where she sort of does that don't really ring true because the character isn't really there or what but like I certainly didn't feel like that ever really there's no like high five let's go kill the robots moment 
there is just they go from arguing with each other to like being in extreme duress and back and forth right like there's yeah. there's not like there's there's not moments maybe it's just the movie is trying to be too grim that there's not these sort of there's there's comic relief but like there's a scene in this movie where a killer robot brings everybody coronas and nobody smiles right like it's just like <laughs> and i'm not saying the women should smile that's not what i mean that's not what i mean that's not what i mean please stay away from me um what i mean is like that there isn't that moment of bonding between the protagonists to indicate that the coalition has been a success and to give you that sense of confidence that now they're ready to face the bad guy they kill the bad guy when the running time of the movie has elapsed and there doesn't really i mean danny makes somewhat of a personal transformation but as a group I don't really get the sense that the three of them together arrive at any sort of new understanding of each other from watching this movie. They should have all shared beers and commiserating over the fact that they get paid 80 cents of the dollar for every Terminator that they kill compared to a man. Mark, it's much simpler than that. They all they have to do is share a bag of potato chips. The potato chips, that is the thing that irritated me more than anything else in this okay, movie. Let, let's talk about the potato chips, but let's also circle back to uh, the aforementioned killer robot who gives them beers, Carl. Uh, <laughs> okay. We got to talk about Carl. Yeah, but talk about, t- tell me more of a potato so, chips, Pete. So like, so, like, in all sorts of action movies, there are all these, like, little moments of, like, set up, pay off, set up, pay off, right? Like, like, the one that comes to mind that's really relevant for this one is in the Fast and the Furious movies, the later ones. You know, Tyrese's character is always trying to get snacks from the vending machine. And at one point, I think it's the Rock's character just like shoots the glass out of the vending machine to get him to shut up. And he like pauses and then he like gathers up all the snacks really enthusiastically. Right. And it's like a fun moment. And and even in more serious action movies, there's sort of like set up payoff, set up payoff. Christian Bale has the USB cable and then he uses it on the Terminator. Oh, it worked. Right. Um, And this movie sets up potato chips like three times. Right. There's three different potato chip scenes in the movie. There's the scene where we find out that Linda Hamilton or that Sarah Connor hides her cell phone in potato chip bags. Right. In order to block the GPS from tracking it, which I don't think would work, but maybe who knows. Uh, And then there's the scene later and she tells and she she tells uh, Danny that she really likes potato chips. And that's why she uses potato chips, because she eats bags and bags and bags of potato chips while she's on the road. And so she has them. So she uses them to shield her cell phone. Then there's a scene later where uh, uh, Sarah Connor sends Danny to go get potato chips so that she can have a conversation privately with Grace about what they're going to do about their problem child, which is sort of like where that relationship should be happening. But those scenes were all written very argumentatively without a lot of like connection or progress. It was, was my feeling like the scenes don't really work uh, on their own, probably because they're too focused on the action scenes and they're not, they don't really think these scenes are important. Um, and then later when Carl is mentioning to uh, Sarah Connor how he knows where she is. It's like, well, if you're going to put your your phone in potato chips, put your phone in a bag of potato chips. If you take it out, which we see her do at one point, then everyone's going to know where she is. I don't think there's anywhere in the movie where anybody eats a single potato chip, right? Like, unless it happens on the train during the part where I went to the bathroom, where they're going across, they're going to the border patrol place, right? They're going, they're going to meet the coyote on the train. Unless there's like a bonding scene where they all eat potato chips together. I think that we have three character development scenes about how much Sarah Connor loves potato chips and she never freaking eats any potato chips. This is an action movie. It is not, this is not Solaris, right? Like, it's like, like there is such a simple pleasure in watching the thing happen that's been established 
as likely to happen, right? Either watch it or frustrate it, right? Like have Grace come back with popcorn. They don't have popcorn in the future. I loved popcorn when I was a kid. I got a bunch of popcorn. And then Sarah Connor's like, you could have gotten some potato chips. I told you I like them, right? Like there's so much you could have done with actually showing the thing that everybody was talking about and cashing out the funny setup joke that you made. Like everybody laughed a little bit at the line about how Sarah Connor, all eight people in the theater that I was with laughed at that little line about how Sarah Connor really likes potato chips because they're thinking, ah, right? Somewhere down the line, Sarah Connor is going to be like, is going to stop and he's going to like go to a vending machine to get a bag of potato chips and he's going to see the the Rev 9 in the in the glass and he's going to be like, oh, no, I got to go. Right. Like there's going to be some sort of payout for the potato chips, but it never oh, freaking happens. The scene writes itself. Right. Like yeah. she she sees it. She ducks the Rev 9 javelins a rebar at the yeah. at the vending machine, breaks the glass. And before she runs just for style points, Sarah Connor says, Thanks. And grabs a bag of potato chips (laughs) before she runs away. (laughs) And then Arnold turns to him and goes, waffles have ridges and shoots a bazooka at him. No, that's that's an old, that would be a Terminator 3 solution to a Terminator. But that's the kind of like very small stuff that I think a lot of people wouldn't care about because they don't, they don't watch um, action movies in order to record a weekly podcast. Like they're not like overthinking every line and they're like, Oh man, you know, she just mentioned that if you put yourself, if you put 10 cops between yourself and a rev nine, you're going to end up with 10 dead cops. Oh my God. They're in the border patrol place and there's 10 cops between the rev nine and them. And the rev nine jumps on the ceiling and runs across the ceiling and doesn't kill the cops. Right. And it's like, why not? Why don't we just have a scene where the Rev-9 kills 10 cops? It's so simple. Right. To be to be fair, I think you, the body count of cops does wind up being 10 uh, in that. But actually, OK, yeah, to, to your point. So there's a scene where, like, you know, all the cops try, try to huddle him. Uh, yeah. And and then, like, the, you see him, the, the stabbing happen out of there. No, I think we do see the, the, the dead bodies of them afterwards. You know, but uh, to your to your point, like, it's not like uh, uh, elegantly done in a way that it connects back to the line that was yeah. that was mentioned earlier. And the, sure. the last example of it is like, there's a scene in the movie where they get the EMPs, right? They have the EMPs, they're going to use the EMPs on the Rev-9. And then the EMPs get damaged, right? And then they can't use the EMPs because the EMPs get caught with the bunch of the literally tens of thousands of bullets that are flying around over the course of this movie. When's the right time to reveal that the EMPs have been damaged in this action movie, right? When is the correct time to open the suitcase and reveal that your secret weapon for killing the robot no longer works? When they're just at the moment where they're ready to deploy it. Exactly. And when do they do it? Between action sequences. There's like a moment of quiet where nothing is happening. And Arnold's like, oh, guess what? The EMPs are broken. <laughs> right? And it's like, yeah, yeah, you, really there's the op- even, even if 10 cops die, I don't get that tableau of like the Rev-9 and them and the 10 dead cops. Right. I don't get the cash out. And just with it's like they set it up and they don't bring it through. But anyway, talk about Carl. Pull me out of this and talk about Carl, because Carl is both the best and worst part of this movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Um, oh, where, where, where to start? Okay, so they had to find some convoluted way to shoehorn an old Arnold Schwarzenegger into this movie again, because right, <laughs> they did it for Terminator Genesis. So here we are. And uh, by the way, this is a good opportunity to point out the um, 
the exposition, the horrible exposition problem in this movie and also other Terminator movies, right? It's like, okay, you know, you're gonna, Carl's gonna show up and you have to explain why he's there. And, and of course, it's gonna be like lead in exposition, you know, and, 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 and that wooden Arnold Schwarzenegger voice. Uh, to be fair, that we've come to know and love, but still, it's like, okay, this is your classic, um, show don't tell problem and what do you tell 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 this is what i mean they try to do some show right with the with the family photographs and then the family shows up as well but you are asked to take on a lot of information and a lot of character development in a very short period of time so you're all really getting off to a very shaky ground from there the humor kicks in and that, that helps rescue things a bit but uh, i don't know like pete matt talk about the character stuff there and like that kind of backstory that you got to process yeah, I mean, Matt, you want? I just ranted a bit, and I need to. I need to take a shot of insulin and benzodiazepine so that I can survive. How much? I don't know, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Dosages of medicine don't matter. <laughs> sorry. Well, the, oh, they, they didn't, you didn't even have to comment on that. She could have just done it. It would have been fine. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Like the the it it is like. Stupid. It is pretty stupid the way it turns out. Like, I want to argue with the backstory on the merits. Like, a computer that has been shut off or has been, like, uh, has, you know, uh, finished executing its instructions doesn't, like, you know, look around for other instructions. You know, it goes idle. It stops, uh, it stops processing. Right. So like the idea that, that Arnold would, it would actually be better to find Carl just, uh, just kind of like drooped over somewhere, like deactivated, you know, like, uh, like data and the measure of the man when, when Riker turns him off. Um, yeah. The, and then you can put your USB cable into the term right. and reprogram it. That's what I'm, yeah. th- you know, something like that. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. But the, the idea, like, you know, the idea that, that he, he just got good. He like discovered almost from first principles. That's what he is. He's he's Wittgenstein. He's <laughs> Carl Carl is Wittgenstein. Like like you know one dot one dot one dot one. The world is everything that is the case. Right one dot one dot one dot two. I used to think that not loving people was an advantage. I was wrong. One dot one dot one dot three. The you know it's the the try and it's the Tractatus right like that and that like from first principles he's going to like reason out uh, how to be a good how to be a good. Um, uh, a partner, which apparently is like you change diapers without complaining. You're a good listener, and you don't make sexual demands on your, you know, on a on a woman who's just had a baby. So the also you're very funny. <laughs> um, so this is, uh, you know, uh, th- th- it's it's silly for for a number of reasons, but not so silly as the discussion of whether the carpet matches the drapes in the, you know, oh god, <laughs> in the warehouse. No, I'm saying I'll bet the That's carpet. The in the movie. I'll bet the carpet. I'll bet like the the solid color drapes were were you know aligned with the carpet. But uh, why why Pete? Why is that the best scene in the movie? Is it because oh. that that the Downton Abbey moment of this entire film. <laughs> well, okay. So the scene. Up, so, so by the way, if you're still listening to this and you didn't watch Terminator Dark Fate, first of all, the base reality, the base, the base frequency is that the, the base expectation is that not a lot of people saw Terminator Dark Fate. So probably a lot of the people listening to this didn't watch Terminator Dark Fate. Um, though, if if you haven't turned it off yet, uh, Carl <laughs> is the the Terminator who is sent back to kill John Connor. He succeeds at doing it. 
And because he is a learning computer and because machine learning apparently is agnostic to any sort of objective, which is not really the case. Right. But like, you know, whatever. Let's assume that that machine learning is something that continue in sort of a pure and unguided fashion in any respect with regards to any sort of like. Uh, victory condition, which I suppose like is down the line something that's metaphysically possible, right? He like learns these sort of uh, these sort of lessons about life, right? And and the metaphor here, what's being symbolized here, is that the uh, that he is a, that Carl is a formerly toxic man, right? That 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 it, the coalition of the coalition here, the hashtag resistance coalition in this movie consists of women who know the evils of patriarchal society because it victimized them in when they were younger uh, and younger women who are expressing themselves in non-conventional ways and don't want to be limited by patriarchal society. Uh, women of color who, by by virtue of their position in racial hierarchies, are particular targets of oppression and, and a particular spearhead in the battle against it. And like some and somewhat sort of in the back, uh, men who have figured out not to be toxic and to listen to the women around them. Uh, and the idea and it, it, the idea is that this Terminator committed a totally heinous crime by killing the son of one of the main characters. But because he has been listening and learning, he has come around to the position that the Terminators are evil, and he has decided to use his voice as a signal boost, not to himself go to hunt the Terminators, but to empower Sarah Connor to go hunt the Terminators by, by letting her know, by basically, like, going to get your boy and letting her know where all the toxic robot men are so that she can kill them before they do anything right and so that's like that's where the character is symbolically he's this sort of like avuncular man who's figured out how not to be a a, a leg in the stool of the patriarchy um but of course you know who is he in the movie he's the arnold terminator character and he's and he's good, but he's also like a, a, a parody of the Arnold Terminator character who is good. And so that's one. This is another example of how the movie is undermining itself. Right. Because Carl, the Terminator who has decided to become a drapery uh, salesman and 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 crafter an interior decorator is a riff on the T-800 from Terminator 2, who is also a robot who decides to not be toxic. And the way that he does that is by, like, listening to the children and recognizing the needs of the children and putting the needs of the children above himself. And he, for him, his masculine qualities are kind of an essential aspect of the family unit that's being articulated in Terminator 2, right? And, and the idea that he needs to kill himself, that he's sort of, like, sacrificial in this respect, and that he doesn't get to sort of grow and produce life the way the woman does, is kind of part of that kind of deep symbolism of Terminator 2. And so we see that expressed in the scenes like when the T2, the T-800, like, pulls a, sh- a sawed-off shotgun out of a box of roses, right? And there's this idea that he is like, he has come as a friend, but he must be a Terminator, right? And the idea that he is an ally, but he is still a dangerous man who can't entirely be trusted, uh, who does can't be trusted to not be violent. And so Carl, the drapery guy, is a parody of that by saying, like, oh, no, he learned to be totally nice. He cuts up the fruit and he puts it in the beer, right? He brings it to everybody. And the speech that he gives in the, in the, in the bunker, in the kill box as they're waiting for the Rev 9, is a parody speech. It's a parody Arnold speech where, where he's like, like, 
Uh, well, I don't forget what's the exact phrase he uses. And, and he's like, I tell him, don't do it. <laughs> right? Like he's going to use the, the cells, the solid colored curtains in the little girl's room. And I say, don't do it. And he says it with the same urgency that you would say, like, don't fly the Harrier jet into the building. <laughs> right? Like he says it with the same urgency as like, don't, don't uh, shoot the hostage or I'm going to kill you. Right? Like he says it as a parody of the like protective masculine figure who is using his violent capabilities. We'll call him the Mr. Bates in this Downton Abbey, right? It's like Downton Abbey, the later seasons of Downton Abbey are haunted by the Mr. Bates question of like, are all men inescapably violent and vengeful against those who wrong them? And so like, if somebody does a man wrong, does the man need to be protected from knowledge of that? Right. Or if like a woman near a man is hurt, should you shield the men around that woman from knowledge of that? Because the men can't help but become savage. Right. And Carl, the drapery guy, is a is a joke about like, well, yeah, but like also men totally settle down and sit in their barca loungers and, and in the middle of Texas with a bunch of guns they don't use and like don't do anything. Right. And they think they're action heroes. Uh, and, and that's funny. Right. Because there's a grain of truth to it. It's that Arnold used to be an action hero and now he's an elderly German man. Right? Like, and so like and so he and so that's that's the joke. Right. But Carl is both supposed to be like a critical member of this alliance and a joke at the expense of the man who ends up being a critical member of this alliance. And so tonally, it's really out of whack with the rest of the movie. But it's I thought it was the best scene in the movie because it was the most kind of surprising. Uh, and it felt like uh, something jumped out that said like, oh, that's interesting, right? That's funny. That's fun. There's a, there's an expectation in there that's being cashed out, right? That like Carl is set up as the like, I'm the Terminator, but I'm settled down and I watch football and drink beer. Um and that speech is a sort of meta joke about it. And that's why I really enjoyed it. I thought yeah. it was well written. It's, that's the kind of speech you would expect from a Terminator movie directed by the Deadpool director. Right. Like it, that's. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It, speaking of which, it's also a meta joke. Right. A meta commentary about how uh, Tim, Tim Miller, is that his name? The Deadpool director co- yeah. clashed horribly with James Cameron. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, please go into that. I don't really know. A lot yeah. About I mean, so. Right. So there's uh, I don't know a ton about it either. I was just doing a bit of research. So maybe the gist of of what Arnold is, uh, what Carl is saying is that, like, you know, the client wants to do this, but I say we should do this instead. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> yep. Yep. And um, yeah, it's James Cameron is, is on the record basically saying, like, yeah, we argued a lot over the creative vision of this. So I don't know. I can't say like X parts of this movie were Cameron and Y parts were Miller or this and the other. Oh, I, I can't say. I take that back. I can't say that apparently James Cameron gave Tim Miller a list of action scenes that he had been thinking about putting into a movie somewhere at some point in time when the occasion allowed and says, here, work these into the movie. Right. So that's why we have the jets uh, colliding with each other in midair and why they hurt, why we have a Humvee that's clash crashing into um, the Hoover dam, not because they all sprung from the mind of an auteur and a singular creative vision with a very focused story to tell like James Cameron did in Terminator one and Terminator two. No, it's because uh, James Cameron's like pulled them off of his like, uh, you know, scratch pad yeah. <laughs> and, and, and gave and gave it to like a team of about a dozen writers to make it happen. Spider is the most fearsome predator known to man. You got to have a giant spider in the movie, right? It's, it's the, uh, the Kevin Smith, Superman, John Peters, Wild Wild West story, right? Where it's like that. that actually, gonna... This is this is a bit tangential, but that might be a reference to what like the the the. Universal Studios Terminator thing where there was a spider like uh, uh, T1 million, I think is what it was called. (laughs) 
Well, I was just talking about an evening with Kevin Smith, where like Kevin Smith tells the story of how he was hired to write a Superman movie, and John Peters kept trying to force uh, Kevin Smith to write a scene where Superman f- fights a, a polar bear and then a spider, and he's like, "Why?" Right? And he's like, "Oh, it was fearsome predator known to man." And eventually, <laughs> that movie doesn't get made, and so Kevin Smith goes to see the next John Peters movie, which is Wild Wild West, and sure enough, there's a giant spider in it for no reason. Right? It's like that spider was going to be in some movie. Um, so, I mean, this movie reads exactly like a movie that people were a whole group of people were constantly arguing about because yep. most of the scenes are about people constantly arguing and, <laughs> and the climactic action of the movie is someone saying like look none of this matters we have to do the thing that we have to do in the movie it does the future doesn't matter the past doesn't matter we have to make a choice and we have to choose what we're going to do right now <laughs> which is like she's basically danny is like i guess she's the director surrogate who is saying like or whoever it is that made the final decision right maybe the writer who who's fantasizing about what it would be like if this project had better leadership who's saying like <laughs> look i know we have a committee here and everybody has their own ideas but you know maybe we just need to fight the robot <laughs> and, and then everything will be fine <laughs> uh, well how many scenes are like that in this movie where it's like a very transparent commentary on the difficulty of making this movie i feel like there are a bunch uh right um is there uh, is, is well, no, the, there's the, the, one the, where, the other uh, obvious one is when they're at Carl's house and they're first arguing about the plan. Okay, right. yeah, yeah. Do, can you go into that more? Um, I mean, basically, that there's the argument. Danny wants to say, like, you know, we, 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 we. No, not Danny. I think it's a uh, Carl. No, no. Sarah, Sarah Connor's suggestion is that we set the kill box and we, we trap it. Um, and I think uh, Grace says that no, we should just keep, we should just keep running. Um, and then Danny says, no, 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 no let's 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 do the fight. The right, fight option, right, right. but there's like there's there's like a lot of animosity. There's there's like strong disagreement within yeah. the group well, again. There's this for no real the good be- reason. There's a scene at the beginning of the movie where uh, Sarah Connor knocks the Rev Nine off of a bridge, and it's like in a smell smoking wreck, and she is like going down presumably to finish it off, and then grace and danny steal her car and drive it away and she says like i'll be back right and it's funny um and you can tell that she's like i've done this a million times i'm gonna go double tap the terminator right because we because she lives a zombie land existence where where all of this has become very passe yeah and so she goes down to kill the terminator and then she realizes her car is being stolen and she abandons killing the terminator she's like oh right like okay i have to go do the car scene now right like because they didn't let me kill the terminator we have to go do this other thing right one would think that that would be the most urgent consideration uh, even above i know that they don't make azuzus like that in the united states and sell them in the states anymore but like body on frame suvs are hard to come by for affordable prices but you got to kill the terminator if you've got it in a situation where you could kill the terminator um and the fact that she doesn't streams more to the idea of like sort of general for frustration of a lack of direction in this collaboration than like uh you know a real earned character moment right like oh man uh what are some other ones hey, uh, they, oh, they, well yeah. I, I, Pete, I was hoping we could actually close with a couple thoughts about action movies oh yeah sure, sure, I, sure. I think we don't make action movies anymore okay Right, like unpack that. the the, the I, and I'm talking about your classic '80s action movies. You know, like I feel like uh, would you say the MCU movies are action movies or they're movies with action? Uh, in the I don't think the MCU movies are all one genre. I think they're a heteroglossia that kind of dabbles. Each one. 
dabbles for, in a different subgenre. Fair, fair enough. But like, yeah. do you feel like there are full? Do, do you feel like there are sort of action movies uh, in there, or that there are like aspects of that? I mean, like Die Hard esque action movies, or right, right. or like. Um, well, I, I don't know, Predator or something like that. That that's also right. kind of a horror. That that one too is sort of a hybrid. Um, that they just made a Predator movie. Yeah, I have it. I have the DVD and a book. I haven't watched it yet, but <laughs> I have to watch. I want to watch. I got to show my wife Predator. I haven't shown my wife Predator yet. But yeah, no, no. I think I, I would say that like certainly the allure is somewhat gone, right? Like it has to be an action movie plus something else. It either has to be super cheap and or produced overseas. Uh, you know, for like video or red box consumption, like you can find a lot of action movies at a red box. Um, you can find a lot of things that are, Oh, box. that's interesting. Notably like, like the bag of cliff bars that you are bought and you're going to down in one sitting once you get home. Right. Like there's a whole bunch of things that you whole bunch of bits of sorrow that you find around the red box. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the idea that, that you can make just an action movie and it doesn't have to have any sort of other element to it, we're not in that sort of part of the genre cycle, right? Like we're not in a sort of classic action movie. We're in a sort of Baroque action movie uh, phase where like all the action movies are parodies of action movies and jokes. And they're all kind of like hyper overwrought, right? They're like Hobbs and Shaw, uh, right? Where it's self-conscious. It's like very self-referential. It's, it's very, it's very in tune with all of the other action movies that are being made. Um, And then it's also going to be a catastrophe movie and a save the world movie, Right. Like, um, I don't know. There's this there's cop movies that are sort of coming back around to this sort of small ball idea. But anyway, what were you saying about not making action movies? anymore? Well, I just I I mean, I think that the idea of like this sort of you you had a definition, I thought that that was interesting when when we were talking about it. But the sort of the the like the action movies are about sort of the excellence of the striving body. Right. And that's that's something that's something that's sort of missing, maybe because like the this is what i think the d-day stuff is about it's like you have to you have to have a shortcut the the beaches of normandy stuff is about like you have to have a shortcut to uh huge stakes right like the idea the idea that a movie can be sort of quiet or contemplative i mean i guess there is still indie cinema but like you know why why would you not why would you not make your indie cinema as like a a 10-part netflix show you'd make so much more money doing it that way because they you know they just back up a brink's truck for you know anyone with a little quirky idea but the the sorry I'm, I'm i'm losing my point the the um the idea of like the excellence of a striving body and that the there is a sense in which that is not not good anymore there are a couple of of uh things that could be really that could have been really good in terminator dark dark fate um one is the zero g um uh, cargo plane fight scene, right? Like that would have right. been that would have been a really good scene in in the in a much simpler register where it's you you could um, just follow the action where like you could read you could read the beats from from moment to moment and rather than just c- c- conveying what all action scenes what all like fight scenes in contemporary movies seem to convey, which is just a sort of uh, barrage and dislocation 
communication and and you know uh difficulty orienting yourself and and all of this like that that has become that's no longer like an avant-garde move you know the way the way it was uh when that technique when you know Jean-Luc uh, Jean-Luc Picard when Jean-Luc Godard started um when Godard was like jump cutting in in breathless and like this you know conveyed a uh a sense of like I don't know dislocation or fragmentation or something now now it's just the it's the MTV mode it's the default um it's the default mode of of uh visual storytelling right and and that like i feel like the revolutionary thing to do would be to make an old uh would be to make an old style uh action movie with like with the camera on sticks and like people just like people just you know doing doing something <laughs> in 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 cl- in clear view right and this is what if you watch sorry mark i'll i'll wrap in just a second if you if you watch um every frame of painting the old the the late lamented youtube uh channel that had these fun video essays about film technique that that were really really very good and also like not at all self-serious like really um and and all the better for that the the um in the jackie chan one uh he talks about the sort of the clarity um of a jackie chan action scene how you can sort of see it you can you can see it unfold and the action comedy works so much better because so much care is put into conveying information conveying conveying visual information to you in a way that actually scans right in a way that that lets you know what the story of each moment is in the sense of like a beginning a middle and an end the like the logic of an action right an action is a beginning a middle and an end it's an it's an impulse a movement and an aftermath and if it's just all like you you know things flying every which way uh you know there's no impetus right there's unclear movement and there's no yeah. real aftermath yeah right and that, that, that applies to the underwater stuff as well too um just Ditto, to, to yeah. round off this discussion on action movies and the excellence of a striving body and like who's doing that now um the most excellent striving body these days doing action movies is of course tom cruise Right. I mean, the, the most like the, the recent spate of Vision Impossible movies, uh, I think, are pretty good exemplars of that. Right. You know, yeah. kinetic, strong bodies and vehicles uh, moving through space, doing cool, interesting things and propelling the plot and the characters. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, you could also say The Rock, but The Rock, because of his size, because of his sort of imposing physicality, like he's pre-expendables, you know, like that he's right. he's already. Yeah. So it, the answer is John Wick. <laughs> Good point. Excellent so like point, sir. I can't believe that. The didn't last come one like, had took on a Baroque quality as well. Maybe like the first well, one. Well, that's what I mean, right? Like, yeah. It's like I don't necessarily think that they definitely still make action. The the ethos of the action movie, the sort of lessons that are learned from action movies still exist and are woven into the frameworks of lots of movies, but they're woven into the frameworks of sort of lots of different kinds of movies. And and so and particularly, I think, because they are efficient in terms of getting things across and also because uh, the sort of burden of expedition, expedition, heavy storytelling is particularly difficult when you have to translate from one language to another. So being able to get kind of things up and going pretty fast and efficiently is kind of desirable when you're trying to get people into the cinema. But but I will say this. I'll say that, like, because I think that we actually live in a pretty good time for for action, but it ha- it's action with a different sort of definition. It's not just this idea of, as you're saying, 
you know, it's lethal weapon and they're chasing crooks across Los Angeles and you're watching, you know, Mel Gibson hang off the side of a car and it's all you need to see is the thrill of Mel Gibson hanging off the side of a car. And or maybe if you would prefer the, the joy of Mel Gibson being hit by a car. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Uh, that, that That's not enough anymore. There has to be something else. And so now the, the norm is something like John Wick, where it's like five somersaults or like the good example is like there's a knife scene in a weapons. There's a knife museum fight scene in John Wick three. Right. Where they're in a knife museum and they're pulling knives out of the glass cases in the knife museum and throwing them at each other in complicated rhythmic and geometric patterns which is like a hong kong action cinema trope going back to the 70s or 80s right and and it's being expressed with all of the tools of modern technology but what i would say is that baked into it is this idea where a lot of people would say oh this is just popcorn fare it's just violence right um they would see the movie as kind of essentially lowbrow because they see the pleasure of the sort of pleasure of watching people murder each other as something that is of a rather sort of trivial and, and juvenile and adolescent sort of dimension. Uh, and so when I was thinking about this movie, Terminator Dark Fate, which I think is not good at doing this, right? Like, like Terminator Dark Fate has some problems in its action circuitry in terms of taking advantage of the fact that it's an action movie in order to, you know, it is also a sci-fi movie. It is also a political feminist movie. It is also a lot of things. It's also being written by 20 people simultaneously over zoom, I guess now rather than Skype because they switch vendors halfway through the podcast. Right. But like, um, it has a DNA, right. About an action DNA an action kind of underpinning. And I don't think it's one that works. And I, and I outlined four qualities and it's three it's three adjectives and a noun, right, uh, that I would attribute to what I like in action movies now. They depart of a movie that is driven by action. Uh, and and I think I would exemplify my one of my favorite action directors now is probably Justin Lin. He of the later Fast and the Furious movies and Star Trek Beyond. Right. Because I really love the way that his action scenes are very kind of poetically symbolic while at the same time being utterly digestible. Right. Um, you know, Captain Kirk floating in non graphitic three dimensional space to reflect his kind of inner life is a great example. Or like, you know, Vin Diesel launching himself over between the two highways to grab right michelle rodriguez in this sort of measure of the two of them with this world that doesn't have space for them right um and so the four things were uh arousing right and i mean that in the sense of like adrenaline fear excitement right like uh yes sexiness right yes, you mean, but yeah thrills. yeah but you mean you mean neurologically arousing yes yes i'm i'm saying like and i'm i'm, I'm old enough now to see that these things kind of like flow into each other right like fear and love and anger you know, neurologically arousing, kind of like uh, psychologically arousing in some sort of way, not strictly sexually arousing, but just like you you have it is a characteristic of these kinds of movies that they are exciting. Right. But exciting kind of carries with it certain very specific connotations. So I prefer to say arousing because it kind of leaves open the possibility that it could be exciting for a variety of different kinds of reasons and modes. Right. Um, and, and and so if it's boring, then it's not a good action movie. Right. The action isn't working if you're not excited. Um, it should be resonant. Right. And the point of this is that by by going with something that already reverberates and resonates and kind of like what that means is that if you have two things that are similar to each other, then the one then they're amplified. Right. Two frequencies that are the same two two wavelengths, two waves that are at the same 
frequency or a resonant frequency amplify each other, right? And they, they sort of magnify each other's amplitude, whereas uh, or they magnify the sort of shared amplitude, as opposed to waves that are not in frequency, which, which kind of cancel each other out, right? Um, and so action movies, in order to efficiently tell stories, will pick subject matter that resonates with the audience, such as like being afraid of being mugged or being afraid of having a baby, right? Or like being afraid of, of being out at night, right? Uh, being afraid of the first time that you had sex, right? They'll pick or being like feeling aggressive because, you know, you you feel strong for the first time in your life because you're going through puberty, right? Like any sorts of like intense emotions that you might have as a person, an action movie will generally that is good is going to reflect on some sort of dimension of that in a way that kind of resonates and amplifies the idea that it's expressing. And it will do it in an intuitive way by depicting action in a way that kind of like strengthens the underlying sense rather than trying to explain to you a whole other mode of thinking, right? Like, you know, Hey, we're in flatland where there's two dimensional shapes and, and we don't, we're not aware of three dimensional space. And when two squares like come in contact, it's something that defies reason. And it's like, that's fine, but it's not an action movie like we have to understand what's happening and it should resonate and the really good action movies internally resonate right they set up expectations and then they do things that amplify their own expectations which in turn amplify the expectations of the audience and of course sometimes it's about confounding the expectations of the audience because being frustrated is a form of being aroused sometimes right like or being surprised right being surprised and and delighted by something that's unexpected is a form of excitement and so if you resonate in a way that excites it's not intrinsically conservative but it has to be grounded in something right and the third one is it should be spectacular it should be cool to watch um and, and because it's a movie and it's sequential pictures and and uh if it weren't spectacular you know there would be no need to do it in this way and and the idea that all of these priorities are being served by the idea that what you're watching is kind of fun and cool to watch so i would say that terminator dark fate is it's mostly kind of annoying for me, but I can see why it would be exciting for a lot of people because the things that it shows are of a sort of threatening and big and fancy nature. I don't think it's resonant for all the reasons that we've outlined because its symbolism is all over the place and is pretty complicated and changes every scene. So, like, it has problems with resonance, which means that it doesn't really hit the heights that other action movies are capable of hitting when things are kind of lining up with themes, you know, in, in thematic ways that are kind of reverberating with people. Is it spectacular? Like, I think so, right? There's, like, there's a uh, Humvee flying out of a burning plane, right? Like, that's exciting. Certainly, certainly Grace is a great spectacle in this movie, presented as a sort of reinvention of the female body in motion in a modern sense. is like, that's a really cool thing to watch, right? Emily cool Blunt was better in Edge of Tomorrow, but yeah, okay. Um, that's very true. Emily Blunt is, is, is a much better version of this character. Uh, well, because that character had more internal life and kind of more relationships and stuff. Um, what was she called? Like, the... The, the the red bitch or something or the black, like that the black widow or yeah something oh, like yeah, that something like that and then and then the fourth thing is that it has to be a deed some sort of deed has to be accomplished and that's because you want to have a beginning a middle and an end and you want to have an arc and a story and in order for for that to happen and something to sort of traverse over the time that you're watching it which will kind of further reinforce people remembering it and caring about it and will also give you opportunities for kind of like compositional epicyclical relationships right if, if something has a beginning a middle and an end and it has deeds that are in it that has an opportunity for further resonance because you can create kind of internal echoes of things right like which is mostly just the same car chase happening in a whole bunch of different ways this one is faster right this one has more guns um but but like and i would say that terminator dark fate has a pro has a deeds problem because they're constantly arguing about what they're trying to accomplish 
And even when they kill the Rev-9, it's like not really clear that they've accomplished anything. And, and and there also aren't there isn't sort of a sufficient sense when they've accomplished something that like they did it right. Uh, wow. Yeah, we did it. Right. It's it's sort of like the the sort of uh, the, the arc of it is kind of uh, frustrated throughout the movie. It's almost like a sort of flat. Uh, cacophony that's kind of like briefly there's like cacophony pause cacophony pause without the sense of like okay we did the thing we did the thing right um you know we we made it to 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 carl's but like did we really did we really accomplish anything because who is carl and why and it's strange and frustrating and we didn't really get anything that helped us right so so that's my taxonomy of the sort of action element and pedigree of movies that are kind of heteroglossic or or multi-genre nowadays, uh, often Baroque, self-parodying or meta, because we're in a kind of late phase of the genre cycle with regards to action movies. But that's what I like. And you might like something else. So I would encourage you to give me your action taxonomy, right? Like, what is it about uh, action that you like in movies? Like, and you're probably going to like different action movies than I do, because I'm a weirdo. But But that's what I want. I want something exciting. I want something that resonates. I want something that's fun to watch. And I want something where people uh, do exciting, do, do accomplish things, right? Where a deed is accomplished. And the difference between an action movie and a horror movie, right, is like the, the thrill of accomplishment versus like the thrill of potential failure. Right. Um, which is which is, I think, the difference between what, like Blade and other vampire movies. <laughs> it's like Blade kills well, the vampires. The difference between Terminator 2 and Terminator 1. Yeah, there you go. Terminator 1 is a horror movie because the actual accomplishment of killing the Terminator isn't the point. Whereas Terminator 2 is an action movie because like the, the Terminator has the power to fight and kill the Terminator. Right. Like that. That's what makes it different is the feeling of deed and accomplishment. Whereas Terminator one is sort of like I barely escaped with my life, Um, that kind of thing. So anyway, I just talked for a really long time. I probably put us really over on time. Uh, Perhaps an hour and a half long podcast is the darkest of fates. Hey, Mark, you're Uh, the you're the world's foremost expert on uh, bring us home with uh, with the last thought about this film. Sure. Um, Okay, we talked about a lot of things uh, that. Uh, don't resonate like you know thematic elements that aren't cashed out um things like that so i want to touch on one last thing i think it's very important for the success of terminator one and two uh and it's actually a certain like biblical quality that those two movies had i'm talking about how in both of them only a very small group of people are privy to the truth of the future they mm-hmm. see the terminators right you know let's say take terminator two right uh, uh john and sarah connor very notably dr silverman the psychiatrist who sees it and kind of goes crazy as we see in Terminator three. Well, the original Terminator three, um, and that makes some profits, right? That, that gives like a real, uh, uh, religious sense to these movies. Um, it, 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 it helps elevate them. It, it helps us, uh, connect to all these other different stories we have in our culture where a select few people are among us that know the real truth. Um, and that everybody else is ignorant, um, or in on it in some way. Uh, and we also, it helps us to project and, and give us something to feel like, oh, you know, I, I, I feel like that sometimes as well. Um, that is not the case with Terminator Dark Fate, right? And there are lots of different scenes or lots of bystanders just see, uh, in very unambiguous terms, that was a freaking robot that killed a bunch of people right in front of my eyes. Um, so now a lot of people in the world know about Terminators, uh, and it's not the, the, the implications of this are not cashed out at all, even a little bit, um, which is like a big failure there like, to take it beyond like the struggle of a small group of privileged prophets, um, you know, with, with their special knowledge 
um, and, and, and turning into like more sort of a social movement sort of thing, which again is hinted at with the, all the immigration and the border stuff, but again, not cashed out at all. So my closing thought is just like, uh, we, we can see how all these like potentially interesting ideas are sort of hinted at in Terminator Dark Fate, but none of it pays out in a satisfying way. It's just like really disappointing and sad because these movies have given us a lot of grist to chew on and like a lot of great, interesting ideas and thrills, um, you know, from its first two very successful installments. Um, it's not unreasonable to think that there's something more different, uh, to still do with the source material. Um, but it didn't happen in this one. So eh, if you stick, if you stick with this podcast again for another like four or five years, <laughs> <laughs> it seems like someone else in Tali was going to take another stab at it. So stick with us. We'll talk about it. If another one comes out. Thank you indeed for sticking with us. Thank you to Pete and Mark for podcasting. It won't be four to five years. It's next week. that We'll be back with more overthinking it to then visit us on the web, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't, doesn't deserve it. It's hilarious. That's the joke. <laughs> <laughs>